Hey there, a quick reminder that All About Beer is back online. Visit allaboutbeer.com for news, reviews, and beer insight. And you can also follow along on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at All About Beer to keep up with us every step of the way. And if you want to help bring original journalism to the beer space, we have a Patreon that goes directly to writers, photographers, illustrators, and editors, starting at just $5 a month. And there's also a pro tier for all of you professional brewers and industry businesses out there. Visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to learn more. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this is a special episode this week, recorded at the recent Craft Brewers Conference with three of the leading voices in non-alcoholic beer in America. In a moment, you'll hear from Athletic Brewing Company, The Brooklyn Brewery, and Syria Brewing. And this episode is part of our partnership with Pro Brewer. Earlier this year, Beer Edge started working with Pro Brewer to bring original articles to probrewer.com twice a week, covering issues important to the beer industry and aimed at helping breweries of all sizes understand different facets of the business. So check out our articles on probrewer.com every Tuesday and Thursday and visit the site daily for other original content and to stay connected with the beer industry. And of course, we're able to bring you this show each week thanks to the companies that want to support journalism in the beer space. You can help us too. Learn more by emailing sponsor at beeredge.com. And don't forget to visit beeredge.com to sign up for the newsletter, to catch up with the Beer Edge podcast, and to check out our merch page, which is filled with This Week in Beer gear, as well as Defend Pilsner mugs. And a reminder that the Craft Brewery Cookbook is now on sale wherever you get your books. Packed with recipes and stories from some of the best breweries in the country, this cookbook has all of your beer and food pairing needs covered in a fresh and inventive way. It's published by Princeton Architectural Press, so get your copy today wherever books are sold. In a testament to how quickly the beer industry can change, it's hard to imagine, even just a few years ago, that a panel or podcast like this would be taking place. But as the beer industry matures, there's a tilt towards health and wellness, and the rise of non-alcoholic beer in the craft space cannot be ignored. And it shouldn't be ignored. What you're about to hear was held in a seminar room at the 2022 Craft Brewers Conference in Minneapolis. It's an expert panel that is pushing the boundaries of non-alcoholic beer in taste, innovation, and positive public perception. So in a moment, you'll hear from Garrett Oliver. He's the brewmaster of the Brooklyn Brewery, the author of the Brewmaster's Table, and the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer. He's joined by Bill Schufelt, who is the co-founder and CEO of Athletic Brewing Company. And they're joined by Keith Villa. He's the brewmaster and co-founder at Syria Beverages Company. The audio is captured by Eric Edom, who had a microphone and camera set up in the seminar room. So while there aren't individual mics, it will hopefully give you the sensation that you were in the room with everyone else. Here's our conversation. Yeah, I want to start with you because when I think about your brewing career, um, how you've honored tradition, uh, how you have innovated in a lot of space. I think about your, your cocktail beer, beer program a couple of years ago, where you're trying to make beers that were inspired by uh, your deft use of barrels and wood. Um, is MA a different challenge, unlike what you've faced in the past? Well, it is a different challenge. It's a technical challenge. It's also, I would say, uh, a philosophical and emotional challenge. You know, so I think, you know, I come at this from a, maybe a different uh, direction than a lot of people, and I'll be, you know, clear about it. You know, uh, I believe in alcohol. <laughs> I really believe in alcohol. I believe in it the same way I believe in fat and salt, you know, which are things that, in uh, if not taken in moderation, will kill you. You know, if uh, I don't eat non-fat things, I don't eschew salt, but you got to be careful. You eat a, a whole big bag of potato chips every day and you eat, you know, bags of french fries and you eat a stick of butter, you're going to die. Same thing with alcohol, you know, and uh, these things can enhance your life or they can destroy you. So I think of them that way and uh, uh, 
And to me, you know, I love fermentation and I love what alcohol can do in your life. However, you know, when we got to this, we were coming from a different background, I think, than everybody else here. We were looking at our European markets uh, where there was a very different outlook towards NA beer. Um, now, people may not know this, but outside of the Brooklyn, uh, the New York City area, the biggest market for Brooklyn Brewery today is France, um, followed closely by Sweden and the UK. So we sell beer in 35 countries, and a lot of these countries do not have the same attitude towards alcohol and NA beer that we do. So whereas, and so this is the first time we actually did a market study. You know, we never done like a really big market study. We, you know, our, our European partners asked us to do this. And what we discovered was that the main word that was associated among Americans with any beer was disappointment. Um, and so we looked at the opportunity in Europe and we saw that it was a completely different attitude in Europe. You know, you saw somebody drinking a traditional non-A beer, any beer in, uh, in the United States, you said to yourself, well, this person has a drinking problem. This is what it meant, period. Uh, in Europe, it might mean that you plan to go hiking in the morning, or that you had a regular beer and that you would just kind of switch back and forth. And so there was a completely different meaning behind it, and we thought that if we could do this well, that we would actually present uh, the European drinkers with a different kind of any beer with a different flavor set. Uh, and for me, despite the fact that I believe in alcohol, this was a very interesting challenge. Now I told the people we were working with that I was the last person on earth who was gonna have any interest whatsoever in consuming this product. I was very, very clear. I was also incorrect. <laughs> so, uh, and during the pandemic, I definitely learned that there was a great utility to having non-alcoholic non beer in the house, and it's actually been fun to try to chase this rabbit, you know. Um, that sort of brings me to a question I wanted to ask Keith, because you were responsible for one of the best-known beer brands in the U.S. and Blue Moon, uh, which had broad consumer appeal. Um, you know, there were craft drinkers, non-craft drinkers, but uh, it, it, it had, it, it, the flavors appealed to a, a wide selection of drinkers. Is there a possibility that N.A. can have that same broad appeal? Of course, yeah. It's, uh, uh, the thing we've got to do is really educate uh, both retailers and consumers, because uh, a lot of people really associate non-alcoholic beer with O'Doul's. And it's, uh, you know, as you go through the market, uh, a lot of folks are, uh, well, I guess kudos to Anheuser-Busch for being so good at marketing. Uh, but you, when you go out and talk to people about non-alcoholic beer, uh, they think, like, like Garrett said, uh, you're either pregnant if, if you're a female, or you, you're a recovering alcoholic, uh, or you're on medication or something. So. But uh, once they find out that practically any style of beer can be reproduced without alcohol, it still tastes pretty good, um, that's when you start to, to find believers in the category. So, uh, and, and it's not just a, a fad that's going to go away. Uh, it is a, it's a lifestyle. It's a trend that's here to stay. And so, uh, so I believe strongly in it, and I think it's uh, uh, something that consumers are now going to have an option when they want to uh, pace themselves on a Friday night, or, or if they're sober curious and they want to uh, find out what it's like to go out with friends and uh, experience a nice uh, weekend, uh, partying and dancing, having fun without alcohol. I mean, a lot of you know, a lot of young people in the older days used to. Uh, older days. I, this is my 40th 40th year of, of brewing. I started in 1982. So, in the old days, you know, a lot of people would be buzzed or drunk uh, when they went out. And, uh, Nowadays, people are much more educated, educated, much more uh, wise, wiser, smarter about going out. And people want to know what it's like to, to do that in a, with a sound state of mind, and, uh, wake up in the morning without a hangover. So, so it is. Uh, I think everything is coming together, and uh, it's going to be a whole new era for uh, for the drinker. Gives them a lot of options. Um, Bill, you've connected, I think, through Athletic with. 
NA consumers really well. Um, people seem to, to identify with the brand uh, and have sort of made it part of their uh, post-exercise routines, their sort of their lifestyle and everything. As, as you've been talking to um, talking to the consumers, talking to the drinkers, what are they looking for when it comes to an NA experience? You know, aside from disappointment, uh, avoiding disappointment. Yeah. Um, I'm really just honored to be up here with two absolute legends in craft beer, Garrett and Keith, and like the work they have done out in front of all of us currently in the industry now. Like, I can't imagine how many people's first craft beer was either in Blue Moon or Brooklyn, or like Brooklyn was the whole New York City craft beer scene for so long. So, super cool. Excited to be up here. Um, but yeah, in echoes of so much of what they said, uh, I, I think one thing Athletic has always been clear about is like we're not a soapbox company. We're not trying to bring back prohibition. We're like the in the modern life, there are times where you want to drink and not. And very often it's Friday and Saturday night, very specific hours or work occasions. But even some of those occasions you do or don't want to be drinking, or you might be, as Garrett said, just like swapping occasions um, in the same occasion. Um, and we wanted to make beer, great beer, that doesn't compromise at all on that social experience, on the flavor, on the excitement of the can, and take beer, non-alcoholic beer, from that penalty box to a really positive, aspirational place. So that it wasn't something you had the label turned in your hand or poured in a glass before anyone in your group saw it. It was something you had to label out and you were hoping people asked you about. And you were like, you've got to try this. Look what I found. It's amazing. And they talk about it and it spreads. And um, something I've heard Brooklyn say a lot um, is like the six-pack test in your fridge. Like if you put a six-pack non-alcoholic beer in your fridge, just watch how fast it disappears. And you'll find, oh my goodness, there are beer occasions on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or the day on Saturday at all different hours of the day than you've traditionally been drinking beer. And it's like, oh my goodness, like this Friday and Saturday night occasion that the world has been knife fighting for for decades, all of a sudden there's other days of the week and there's another 50% of the population who's not drinking craft beer who now might be open to a totally new growth category in this business. So it's, um, and the whole, rest of, the whole rest of the day. I mean, I discovered you know, this utility that I didn't expect to exist when I started running into a problem, because at the end of the day, I'd be on my way to the gym. And you're at my age, you can't not go to the gym or everything goes, you know, everything goes downhill really rapidly. Um, and so, you know, I'd be on my way to the gym and my brewing team would be at our, you know, our bar in the tap room saying, hey, Garrett, come have a beer with us. And I would have to make a decision. I'm either going to have a beer with my team or I'm going to go to the gym, but I can't do both. Because, I mean, I had discovered the hard way that if I have even a half a beer, uh, you know, that, that gym routine is going to be the worst, <laughs> yeah, the worst hour of my life. So I, I, I couldn't make that happen. And then I just, you know, I just realized, well, wait, I can go to the bar and I can have this beer and I have the same overall experience with my team and then go to the gym. It was like magic. You know, I'm like, wow, this is really great. You know, and I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything, and neither did our customers, because we would sometimes, in the early days of development, we just say to them, "Hey, this is our, you know, our new, you know, our new lager. We're, you know, we're, you want to taste it?" They're like, and they just start drinking. It's like, yeah, this is great. And whatever else, nobody ever noticed anything. And when we told them that it was not alcoholic, they were shocked. And that's when we knew maybe this could happen in the United States. That was probably like four years ago, <laughs> five years ago. It is the goal, because I, I know when you taste no duels or some of the other, I've said recently that they taste like disappointment um, in, 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 in some ways. But um, the there are some flavors that come from non-alcoholic beers. Um, because of the brewing process, because of, the, that, it, it, because of how they're constructed, um, that you can sometimes taste uh, that it is an NA beer. Um, is the goal to have that seamless experience so that when you're drinking an NA, you're going to be thinking that it's a real beer? Or should there be differentiation between the two so that we can separate it in our minds? From my perspective, uh, I, I think 
they should be pretty similar in taste, but without alcohol, alcohol has that uh, trigeminal uh, sensation on the palate. And, um, I just got done judging how many days at the World Beer Cup. Uh, I was judging all these high alcohol beers, and I think I'm on my fourth liver now. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, to me, the goal is to do that. And, uh, I think it does a disservice to uh, beer and, and brewers when, when you say they, they don't taste the same. And even in the, the rule book, I, I talk about judging because, because in the rule uh, book, the guidelines for judging, it says, uh, something like, don't penalize this beer because of the lack of alcohol. And to me, it's like, uh, you know, if, if it uh, if it doesn't taste like beer, you should penalize it. Uh, I, I, I've had athletics, I, I've had Brooklyn's, and those are pretty close. And, and it's you know they're, they're close enough that it's like you can fool some people sometimes and say this tastes like beer, or, or they they say you tell them it's there's no alcohol and they're they're kind of shocked. And that's the way it should be. Uh, it shouldn't be them tasting it and going, whoa, I, I want alcohol. Uh, we should be as close as possible so that they, uh, and it should look like beer too. Uh, I've had some, uh, I'm not going to disparage anybody by name, but I have had some products that are very watery, and they're thin and watery, and they shouldn't be. Um, and then you go on, on Facebook or something, you see reviews, and people, some people trash them out and say, oh, that's the worst beer ever. But it's, um, yeah, I think we should, uh, make an effort to make them as close as possible to uh, leaded or, or, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say the real beer, because it is real Sure. Beer. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it should, I think it should be uh, as close as possible. And it is difficult to, to make good non-alcoholic beer. The BA asked me to write a, an article for New Brewer a couple of years back uh, to kind of outline the ways uh, craft brewers can make non-alcoholic beer. And there's you know, four general ways to do it. Uh, but in those ways, you have to innovate. Like all of us in this room are craft brewers, and most of us are, and um, all of us are innovative. And, and you could take those four ways and innovate on each one if you want, depending on, on how much capital you have. But you can make decent tasting non-alcoholic beer. And to me, there's really no excuse to, to come up with something that's thin, watery, when it should have body, it should have a head on it that lasts for as long as the style dictates. Uh, should have flavor, a nice aftertaste. It should go well with food. My brewing education is from Belgium. I have a PhD in brewing, and uh, uh, that's one thing they, they always taught was if you formulate a beer, and, and back in those days it was all about alcoholic beer. If you formulate a beer, uh, it should be number one. Uh, fully balanced, number two, drinkable, even if it's high alcohol, low alcohol, you should be able to have a few of them. And number three, it's got to go well with food. And, and if that applies to the alcoholic beer world, it should apply to the NA world. I think it's important to also notice that this is a, you know, in a, in a certain way, this is an old trade. I mean, when, when you look at the history of food products, including drinks, you know, when chili peppers first got into Europe, one of the main things people would do with it is take a 3% beer, put a tiny little pinch of this in it, and sell it as an 8% beer. You know, you get the that chest-warming, you know, quality, which now they're doing with all the non-alcoholic, you know, cocktails or whatever else. Chilies are a main thing to bring about that trigeminal warmth. Yeah. You know, the reason why, you know, craft American slices are yellow is because they used to add a coloring agent that made the cheese look older and therefore it would be more flavorful. The reason why Coca-Cola is brown is it was supposed to look like it was in a barrel, you know. So with there all of these things are were originally started as adulterations and then you move your way into building a structure of what you could call it, you know, a, a sort of sensory trickery, but you're in on, you know, on, on the trickery. Yeah. And I think of it like on my roof in New York, I have lots of beautiful, real plants. I also have a very realistic fake turf. And when I first put it up there, I thought this is going to be just kind of cheesy and funny. The thing is, it's not cheesy and funny, it works. Like it changes your mind, everything about your surroundings, the trees come down to the real plants, come down to this beautiful thing, and you put your feet in it, and in five minutes, you will not even, people lay down on it, like it was, it was it's grass as far as we're concerned. And you know that it's not real, but yeah. within a couple of minutes, it doesn't matter. And that's exactly, 
if it's done well, and that's exactly what you're doing with beer. And in this case, there are really two goals. You know, you're trying to, well, there are three main goals. You're trying to reduce, reduce what we consider worthy flavors. When you make alcoholic beverages, you're always trying to transform the substrate. No, no wine, no good wine tastes like grapes. You know, in fact, if you said a wine was grapey, that's bad. <laughs> you know, same, same is true, you know, like, you know, no bread should taste like dough, you know, and no beer should taste like wort. You know, you're also trying to get the, the, the fermentation characters, the fruity characters and everything else. So all of these Strecker, you know, uh, 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 aldehydic characters and everything else, you know, from potato to uh, all these other, you know, hay and whatever else that hot honey become, become wordy flavors, the, the consumer doesn't know that, you know, that it tastes like work. They just know that it doesn't taste good. Right. You know, and it doesn't taste like beer. You're trying to reduce those. You're trying to bring out the stuff that you would normally get in a fermentation, and you're trying to achieve body and drinkability, as Keith said. And if you can do those things very convincingly through balance and any number of these processes I'm talking about, then you can achieve this kind of mental trickery where everything falls into place and the fact that it has no alcohol disappears for you. How many different beers does, does Athletic have at this point? Um, so we, I think last year we launched 48 beers total. Um, but the great thing about non-alcoholic beer is, like, just like a real-world tap room, you can do an e-commerce tap room essentially, yeah. where we trial things at very small scale, find out what sells, what works, and then we bring a very tried and true lineup to retail. And so our retail lineup almost never changes unless it's a huge. What What are the styles that are leading the business right now? Um, so, yeah, we generally bring our most highly awarded, most popular, most best-selling beers to retail. Um, our classic Run Wild IPA is our number one seller. It's like a very approachable West Coast, more traditional IPA. Um, and then as well, a more modern New England hazy IPA uh, called Free Wave. Um, but then recently, um, and Upside Down's been our very popular Golden Hills, our number like two slash three beer the whole time. Um, we recently launched a two-year, like concluded a two-year experiment to get to an incredible crushable light beer that encompassed the efforts of all our brewing and lab teams um, called Athletic Light. And so that launched in March and it's immediately jumped to a pretty sizable portion of our sales right from the show. Um, how long, what, how, like walk me through that process just a little bit of trying a new beer, putting it out there, um, when when do you guys reach the point where you feel, okay, this has done what we wanted it to do and now it's ready? Like, are you going through a lot of test matches? Is it? For sure, yeah. Okay. Um, so everything Derek Keith said about the full beer experience and what needs to be applies true. They're more sophisticated in, in that than I am, as is our team than I am. But adding on top of that ingredient selection in non-alcoholic beer is incredibly important. Like we are so focused on what just the starting building blocks of our beers as well. Yeah. Um, to get to a beer like Athletic Light was a two-year process to get out to market. We wanted to make a really refreshing, crushable light beer that built on the existing light beer categories flavor at all the macros we wanted to hit. Um, for any time, anywhere beer. Um, and our goal was to broaden the craft beer consumer that we could reach with that. Um, whether any of us like it or not, light beer is still a huge category. And I know most craft beer drinkers like light beer from time to time also. And um, so we wanted to open the aperture of customers we were speaking to with that. So it had a real marketing reason for being in the world as well that built on our existing portfolio. And we're super thoughtful about how our retail lineup plays in the world. Um, I would say the normal process to get something out to the world, like if something were to challenge our four leading brands right now, um, like we have a three and a half barrel and a seven barrel system, and then we trial up from that to e-commerce releases, and then the most popular e-commerce releases will make it out to the world beyond that. Um, but for, like we have incredible brewing and lab teammates who 
an idea can start with anything. And um, an example I've given recently is our first ride coffee porter. Uh, one of our West Coast teammates got like 10 local coffee roasters. We, as a team, we did sensory on the coffee roasters, picked the favorite coffee roaster, put that into a number of porter recipes, then the team did sensory on the porter recipes on a small scale, and then the favorite porter recipe with the favorite roaster, we put it in e-commerce release, and then we did a few iterations with our customers taking feedback on it, and then that was hugely popular, and that made it out into the world this year as a little bit released then at retail. Yeah. Cool. Um, Garrett, you're always tinkering with beers, you're always trying to unlock new flavors. Um, do you are, you, are you thinking about future NA recipes? Is it now part of your, your working brain of? Oh yeah, all the time. You know, and it's, a, it, and it's an exciting area because you're trying, you know, you're, you're trying to make something out of, you know, very little. In a way, it's like, uh, you know, one of my brothers is, you know, is vegan, you know, for, for, for health reasons. And at Christmas and Thanksgiving, whatever else, he would get a whole different meal. And for me to learn to cook vegan food, uh, you know, as a dedicated carnivore was pretty interesting. I had to learn a lot about like miso and all these other things that I didn't, uh, that I wasn't really cooking with. And, you know, learn how to make food that was at least as good as what we were eating and sometimes better. Um, and so this is a, a, it's a creative challenge. Um, you know, but in a way it's, it's, it's sort of like the, I don't know, I used to be a filmmaker, you know, a long time ago, and I always said, you know, the, there's a certain thing about the rigidity of Pilsner, there's a certain rigidity about the Western and the James Bond movie, because there's only one plot, right? right? <laughs> like, you know what's going to happen, and you know approximately how it's going to happen, the only question is, can you do it with style? Right. You know, and you're in this little box, you know, and when you're in that box, what you can do with it is all the fun, and so... You know, when we're playing within these frameworks, you want to taste like an IPA, but you can't have this, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you don't have any alcohol. It's like, okay, yeah. well, how good are you then? You know, and so that that makes uh, for for a real challenge. And 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 we have certainly evolved. And for me, it's exciting to watch you know our versions of this get better and better and better. And there have been a couple of missteps where I was like, no, that's not you know that's a good drink. It tastes nice, but it's not entirely believable as the beer that it's supposed to be. Um, you know, it's not that it doesn't taste good, but it's a different thing, like not tasting good and not tasting like a beer. Because it didn't quite reach that spot where, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's lack of alcohol disappeared or the fact that there's, you know, you, that it was manipulated in various ways to, to show up that way. And so find your way through that on a consistent basis when something is so fine-tuned um, is, uh, is an interesting difficulty. Um, there's obviously other non-alcoholic uh, beverages out in the space. There's been spirits and there's been wine that, that, that have shown up. Um, Keith, we were talking before this panel started and, and you, seem, you think beer has a unique opportunity uh, to, to sort of run this category, you know, like why should people be drinking NA beers over NA wines or NA spirits? Well, beers is the beverage of moderation, and uh, I mean, all of us know that. You, know, you can go have a couple cocktails and you're going to be pretty buzzed. You can have a couple glasses of wine and, and that's it. If, but if you're thirsty and, and you want to drink and you're quenched, uh, you got to go for beer. And if you want hydration, you go for non-alcoholic beer. And, uh, and, and with, with flavors, yeah, there's a lot of flavors. And, and at, at Seria, we, uh, we have two right now, but the reason we're, we're, we're not going to really experiment with a ton of, well, we do experiment with, with styles and flavors, but the thing I learned over the last 40 years of brewing is that um, when I launched Blue Moon, we, we had six flavors. There was, there was uh, nut brown ale, raspberry cream, honey blonde, abbey ale, um, uh, Belgian white, pumpkin ale. And what we found is that it was a logistical nightmare for, not just for us, but for uh, the retailer, the salespeople. Uh, it, it was very difficult. And so in 1998 or 99, 
I cut it down to just one. I said, okay, Belgian, Belgian white is ahead. Let's just stick with one flavor. Um, and what, what happened is people pushed back said, and they said, no, everybody wants all these things. And I said, we're gonna stick with one. And when, when we did that, everybody focused on our one flavor, Blue Moon grew to become the biggest craft beer brand in the United States, and really in the world. Um, it grew to become a um, two million barrel a year brand, and, and for a craft brand, cra I don't care how you define it, craft, pseudo craft, that's a lot of, that's a lot of beer. And I think any craft brewer in this room would love to sell two million barrels of beer. And so and that's, and that's, that's what we did. And I think something all of us on this panel feel really strongly about is food safe, like so everyone talks about like the front end of making non-alcoholic beer taste like real beer, and it is true beer if done well. Most of the work is on the back end. It's how does that go from a fermenter all the way through the bright tanks, the filtration, the packaging, and then last a year out in the world and be safe for sensitive populations and stand up to what you put on the label. Um, and that, that's a big lift and a really important investment for people. Um, there are great food safety consultants out there. You do need a separate food safety plan in your facility for non-alcoholic beer. It can't just be a skew you launch and you treat it like a beer. It, that is dangerous. And really there's almost, unless you're putting preservatives in the can themselves, you need to tell pasteurize it. And there's almost no sentence or butts around that statement to do it safely. Yeah. And that's why every large contract facility that does non-alcoholic beverages in any non-alcoholic beverage category, including CSDs or anything, will have a big tunnel pasteurizer. And yeah, the, unfortunately it does make it a big investment to launch a single skew of non-alcoholic beer, but yeah. the risk to the category of people skipping that whole important back half is much bigger than those investments, essentially. Yeah, Keely. Yeah, yeah, and Bill makes a great point. And I raised that issue a few years ago because with the advent of NA beers, um, anybody who in, who's in this room is making craft NA, you have to realize that, number one, if 5% if or more of your production, and it's in the article I wrote to New Brewer, but uh, if 5% or more of your production ends up being NA, uh, you have to change your, your uh, uh, record keeping and everything because the government will come asking and looking uh, because it's a food product so your quality standards go up. So read the article that I, I wrote. Um, the other thing that I raised was that uh, when you remove the alcohol, I think all of us, when we were home brewers or whatever, we learned that back in the days of the Sumerians, Egyptians, the Middle Ages in Europe, Beer was made primarily because it made water safe to drink. So, uh, you know, water in, in the Middle Ages, you almost couldn't drink it. You would, you would get sick, you would almost die because it was just so, so uh, polluted. Beer would clean it up because the presence of alcohol will inhibit the growth of pathogenic microorganisms. So uh, I'm talking E. coli, listeria, botulism, all these things that can make you sick or kill you. And when you remove the alcohol, that stuff can potentially grow. Um, and, and so when you see a can bulging or exploding like Bill talked about, you don't know what's growing in there. It could be uh, brewer's yeast re-fermenting, making that product more alcoholic than NA, or it could be something else that could make you sick or it could kill you. And so I raised that issue and said, okay, uh, Bob Pease and, and Chuck and <laughs> BA, uh, we've got to do something because uh, right now, if you, if you go in the marketplace, some some craft brewers are just saying they put on their label, uh, "Please keep cold, keep refrigerated," and that's like to me, that's code for saying this has not been pasteurized. Be careful, <laughs> and that's that's dangerous because again, the last thing we need in this category is for for somebody, a craft brewer, to make a product that accidentally got infected with a pathogen and make somebody sick or kill them. And I, I emphasize kill them because lawyers are, are, you can't believe how hungry, you probably do believe how hungry <laughs> lawyers are. They, they sniff this stuff out. And if you put something out that kills somebody, they will go up and down the food chain to try to get money out of your brewery, the retailer who sold your product, the distributor who distributed your product. I mean, these, 
and it puts it sets up the whole category up uh, for some really hard times and so you've got to be careful with, with what you put out in the marketplace because again we don't want to hurt anybody these are our customers we want repeat customers we don't want to kill them and well you know any yeah any is basically in a way you know in a way that we're not allowed to make health claims and a is a health claim right i mean for a lot of people that's that that's you know that's why they're here and if, if and if it's not true you've basically fundamentally lied to them about what your product is you know now we sell you know like i said we sell actually slightly more than 50 percent of our beer overseas we can't get away with that in the first place because they test every single batch you send a batch to sweden and it's supposed to be under 0.5 and at 0.51 you are finished like finished they, they, they don't want to hear nothing <laughs> there's like you take this back and like maybe we'll see you in a year but like you're out you, know, you can't you, can, you can you cannot mess around yeah you can they also test uh, yeah. they can test for whether or not a product has been pasteurized so there are tests for almost everything out there and so you can't fool the, the regulatory agencies because they they will figure out if you're doing things correctly or not and I go back to the story of Odwalla juice which I don't know if anybody heard of Odwalla, but in the 90s, I remember they, they were producing ju juices in, in packages and, and they wouldn't pasteurize because they said, oh, it ruins the flavor of the juice and it ruins the natural vitamins that are in the juice. And that was their sales spiel. And it's a, <laughs> but not for the kids. Exactly. <laughs> and so what happened, what happened was they, um, they were selling their juice and every once in a while they'd have, they'd have an outbreak of uh, listeria or E. coli and they'd, they'd pull it back and, and say, oh, we're okay, we're okay. And then, but eventually a batch got out and it, it happened to make, it was like 60-something people sick. It was infected with E. coli. And it made about 60-something people sick and it killed a young girl. So it's like, and then they, they pasteurized after that. But it's like, by then it's too late and so that's why i'm saying uh, that we have to get ahead of this problem because in this room there's probably a few craft brewers who are making non-alcoholic product that could potentially make somebody sick and like bill said you've got to pasteurize Tun tunnel is is really the only way you can't uh some people say well i flash pasteurize you can't flash and then put it in a, a package because as brewers all of us know that most the majority of contamination occurs at that filler. You can put sterile beer into a tank, that's fine. Your tank might be really clean, but by the time you get to the filler, that's where most of the infection happens. So flash will not cure it. And um, You can put preservatives in, that, that could work. But again, people look at labels, you've got to label that. Um, Valkyrin is another thing that some people may use. That's tricky because uh, that will work in low, low pH products like a sour, but if, you, if you're making beer, beers of that pH where Valkyrin is tricky, it may or may not work. And by the way, one of the, the breakdown products is methanol. Small amounts, but it's, it's methanol. And I know in California, a lot of uh, food safety people try to search out those products made with Valkyrin, or preserved with Valkyrin, and they say, they say, do not drink those because of the methanol. And it is minuscule, and it's allowed by the government, but nonetheless, nobody wants it. A lot of people don't realize your average, you know, your average tropic, you know, Tropicana, whatever else, orange juice on the, on the shelf is 0 0.3, 0.4% alcohol. Almost all fruit juices have alcohol in them because they start fermenting basically as soon as they're being processed. And unless they went through a process to remove the alcohol, you know, then so, you know, you from the time you were a little kid, you were drinking, you know, 0.3 alcohol <laughs> orange juice. It's just a, that's a part of you know, the biology of, 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 of life. You know, the, when, when you get to 0, 0.0, you're at a different extraordinary level than it's provided, you know, within nature. You know, because you're not going to, within nature, achieve, you know, achieve that. Um, but, you know, and I, I laughed earlier. I didn't know about that particular Odwalla. I was talking about, you know, the situations where the fruit juices were getting out there and they had a few percent alcohol and there were lawsuits which were successful you know saying that you sold three percent and this is going to happen within the kombucha space you know because uh it's the wild west out there 
you know, and everybody's lying. You know, everybody's lying. You know, it's like about their like the probiotics. We got this. We got that. You know, this is like, it's like almost all of it. You know, it's like fish. When they say like, you know, the fish that's on your plate, one, didn't come from where they said it came from, and two, it is not that fish. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, there's like 25%, it's like red, that's not red snapper, and it's not from, you yeah. know, wherever. Like, nothing here is true. Um, and, and that's true in the kombucha space, it's true in a lot of these kind of health claim wellness spaces. Yeah. And, you know, eventually people are gonna get clipped you know, and I'm not interested and we're not interested in getting clipped along with, you know, folks who aren't, you know, playing by the rules. The great thing about for us starting in Europe was that like we had to, you know, we had to come correct, you know, from day one anyway, because they call you on, they're doing all their taxes and everything else are based on, you know, your percentage of alcohol, you have a completely different tax base, which is true in the United States as well, you know, everything. And they are, you know, if you want to see serious, they are so serious. You know, like I said, one one point one over the line, you know, uh, or a fraction thereof that they they don't want to hear it. They're like, nope, you lied to us, and now you're in trouble. Hey, I'm sorry. Can I, can I just want to really quickly underline this, like probably the single most important takeaway of this is that like non-alcoholic beer is not possible without tunnel pasteurization to be safe. It's almost not possible and, and in every breath we take there are thousands of yeast and bacteria and everything and even if it's for a split second at the canning line those cans are bouncing down without a lid or even if it's a second thousands of yeast and bacteria are now in that can as it goes out to the world so which yeah. is inevitably a sugar liquid unprotected you know yeah. by alcohol you're you're done and it, all so. you need is one cell and that there's thousands but all you need is one to start growing <clears throat> question back there yeah Lord Mallet. Oh, well, sorry. I just wanted to mention that you, know, you talk about tunnel pasteurization, and you know, those are often very large machines, but they're also very small scale, uh, like, like two cases of beer sized machines to do that tunnel pasteurization. So it is something you can do at, at small scale or large scale. It, there, yeah, what he's talking about are batch pasteurization. Batch, batch pasteurization. Yeah, so there's tunnel, which is the large, obviously we all know what tunnels are, but there's batch pasteurizers too, which mimic what you do in a tunnel. You can you can get, you know, 80, 100, 60, 70 PUs, pasteurization units, in a, a batch pasteurizer, tunnel pasteurizer, but it, like Bill said, it's an absolute necessity to pasteurize NA beer to protect your customers. You gotta do it, uh, no questions about it. And uh, if you don't do it, um, I, I would just say shame on you. Because you, here, uh, we've tested your product, your product, they're pasteurized. This is, uh, on this panel, all our products are pasteurized. And it's, it's, it's not something we brag about, but it's something we have to do. It's a, it's a moral obligation. You gotta pasteurize. No, we never try to find a way around that. That's not, you know, that was never, it was never going to be doable. Yeah. yeah. There's also a, a moral component with the numbers that you're saying as well. If you're putting out a, a 3% when you're saying that it's 0.5, um, you're not meeting the moral obligations that your consumer, that your drinker is expecting as well. That's the, yeah, I mean, we got into pasteurization pretty quickly. I just want to go back to making sure that you know, there is truth in ABVs. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, if someone is, uh, you know, has, uh, whether it's a medical problem or an alcohol problem, a spiritual problem or whatever else, and you, you know, you are saying that you are 0 0.4 and in fact you're two and a half percent, like you're a horrible person. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like never mind like what's illegal, I mean, that's really horrible, you know. I'm trying to see if anybody's shrinking into their seats right now. Um, no, but that was yeah, like, yeah. you know, that thing with McDonald's was found, you know, in, in India were making their fries and they were spraying them with beef extract. Uh, and people like lost, you know, not surprisingly lost their minds. Yeah. Now, do I believe that's wrong? No, I don't have that religion. But I mean, that's really wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's like, wow. <laughs> um, let's take a couple of questions from the audience. Let's start right here. Um, it seems like Legislative advantages are fueling a lot of growth right now, especially direct to consumer. How much have you guys seen? Obviously, volume is one thing, but marketing and being able to get the current customer because of the shipping advantages. How much has that played a role in growth the second and last couple of years? Yeah, I think um, so. It's not a blanket national difference. Like it still, unfortunately, is the state by state, like regulatory world, and there's at least seven states with exceptions. 
um, or a different license in other states or stuff like that. Um, but the marketing flexibility is great. Like I drive our company logo van to the beach on weekends and I pull open the side door with a cooler, give out 200 beers in a half hour and I'm gone. And those are 200 people who have never experienced non-alcoholic beer, who just got it in their hand and they're gonna try it down on a warm beach. Be like, oh, that's pretty cool. And um, so definitely advantages, like that would otherwise require a permit. And, um, it makes digital advertising much more possible too. Um, but I, I will say, in, just like in any beer category, like marketing is very important in being intentional about how you market. Um, I, I think just broader craft beer in general, like if you walk down the beer and beyond beer set these days, every category in beer, in there, pretty much outside of craft, is doing a lot of marketing. I think craft beer is mostly competing on the shelf rather than out in the world to drive people to that shelf. And so you have to be really intentional about marketing and how you're gonna bring people to your brand no matter where you're selling it. So there there have been a lot of brands that have launched along the three of ours who aren't growing the same way or aren't on the retail shelf too. So um, in your ROI calculus, it should be how I'm gonna make it, what the investment equipment is, what teammates are gonna work on this. Like on our team at Athletic, we have like at least 10 amazing lab professionals, and now we have about six regulatory compliance professionals. And so that's a huge investment. We have a real food safety plan. And then um, the obviously food safety equipment as well. But beyond those investments, how are you gonna market your non-alcoholic beer to get over the education hurdles, bring people to the shelf and everything? So it's, um, there were a lot of seltzers launched in the past three years. and. It's no surprise that Truly and White Claw are still keeping their market share because they are spending on marketing and driving new people to their shelf every day. So, mar marketing in whatever form, like it, there's like money marketing and then there's time marketing, like I just referenced. But like it, it's a time resource calculation on my part to show up at the beach with a van, meet 200 people for sure. So. And I think it's the first brand that we built from the ground up, you know, that because uh, we had to, I mean, with our tagline, which was do more. You know, and that spoke to, you know, not talking about disappointment, but that this was a casual decision, you know, or could be a casual decision that you just wanted to do more, whatever it was. Like, you need, you wanted to get up in the morning and go for a run. You wanted to, you know, drive to wherever you were going. Whatever do more was going to mean for you, um, you know, you weren't going to be all groggy in the afternoon after having had a glass of wine or, or, or a beer. You're going to have, you know, a, a beer with your sandwich and get on with your day, whatever it was going to be. But we had never done anything like that where we basically built the brand. The name Special Effects, and I had to give that name up, and I, gave, I handed it over. Special Effects was originally the name of our special barrel aging program. You know, of all these strong beers. And we're sitting there going through, and I'm like, oh, should I thought was the coolest name, right? And I'm yeah. going through all these things, we're trying to come up with a name for it. I'm like, all right, I got the name. And you know, I'm like, what? I got, I got a hand over special effects. Because it's like, special effects is a great name. It's like, the special effect is that there are no effects. Yeah. It's like a triple entendre. I'm like, oh man, I kind of hated, hated it over, but it was too good. Yeah. I want to get back to yeah, direct-to-consumer. Yeah. One of the, the things you have to be aware of with direct-to-consumer, with the NA world, that a lot of people we suffer with, is the fact that when you're going direct-to-consumer and shipping, products freeze because there's no alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, 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 nobody really talks about it, and, uh, but that's, that's one of the things you just have to deal with in the wintertime. Um, it happened to us two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. we had, and we, had, we did a full investigation or whatever else, and we found that like in that part of the country, they weren't in a temperature-controlled truck. They had a cold snap. It went down into the 20s overnight, and yeah, just for, you know, it froze and the can puffed up. But we had to have it analyzed to make sure that nothing untoward had happened, so that yeah. the, the liquid was in there was still what it was supposed to be, it just froze. And that's not something you normally have to worry about. You know, well, even if you, do, you, you pay, as, as the supplier, you can pay extra for, for freeze protection, all these other things, but that doesn't always work. So you just have to be prepared and you have to set aside a small budget to cover that, all that, the, the losses. Because when you start shipping across the country, it, it can become exp a little bit expensive for the smaller players. So you gotta be, uh, be aware that no alcohol means this stuff could potentially freeze uh, in those states where it gets cold, like 
here. We almost need a meteorologist on staff now. So, yeah. Um, there's a question right there. I was wondering if you guys could just speak to uh, if there's been any tests you've done with sorbating and sulfiting beer versus pasteurization, or if there would have to be something on the label as a food product that contains sulfites, if there's any research you've done with that. Any kind of chemical, oh, sorry. Well, I, I guess Keith could probably speak to it much more on a technical level than I can from a guy who's more outside world focused and like customer focused. At Athletic, we never wanted anything on our can that we weren't proud of. Um, and then also a lot of retailers require you to disclose that and won't let it on the shelf. So a lot of top retailers and increasingly so as everyone acts more like the big natural chain retailers, it'll, it'll probably really limit your retail selling universe. Yeah, exactly what Bill says. Um, any, any kind of chemical preservatives, you can use them, gotta label them. Uh, and even if you don't label them, uh, the Whole Foods, uh, natural grocers, um, any of these, these natural uh, supermarkets, they want to know, They want you to sign off on what's in your beer. And if there's anything on their list, they have a list of what's allowable and what's not allowable. No, sorry, list of just what's not allowable. If, if any of those ingredients are on that list, and, and that preservative is, uh, it's like, we'll say, sorry, you know, we don't want your product. And uh, so yeah, it will limit where you can sell it. Very much so for us and you know, Europe as well. We never considered those things, and even that's kind of. I think every brewery has a religion, you know, and your religion will be, you know, will be challenged as it will be in, in real life. And part of our religion was like that's not something that we want, you know, that we want on any of our products. Even years ago, 10, 15 years ago, it was, uh, you know, before you had all these great purees and stuff that were, you know, that were sterile, uh, you know, you know, that were sterile packed. I remember looking for uh, looking for lemon juice with no with no preservatives, and I and it was almost impossible. I had to buy organic lemon juice from Sicily, uh, uh, that was very very expensive, um, in order to make this beer because every single processor had some kind of you know uh, some kind of preservative, you know, in it usually you know an antioxidant of some sort. That like you know like no, that's not what we're doing. We had another question. How about right there? Uh, we're seeing Gen Z kind of lead the way in the sober, curious lifestyle and really dip out of drinking. Uh, but we're also seeing Gen Z not really enter the craft beer market. Have you put any thought into how the NA beer market can really reach Gen Z? I guess um, kind of what I was saying before. Uh, also, like we heard that stat all of us on stage the other day from Mark that the craft beer audience has aged 1.5 years over I'm not sure what time frame. Um, I, I do think part of it is just the lack of overall marketing craft beer is doing. Um, so people who know about craft beer know about craft beer and they're competing on the shelf, but like what are we all doing to speak to 20-somethings and drive them to the craft beer shelf? Um, and where are we meeting them in the world? That I think should be a question across ABV we should all be asking ourselves. Like, craft beer needs to really step up marketing and drive new people to awareness. And those charts that have been going down could start to level back up as we drive more people to the shelf. Um, but there are natural trends of mindfulness and wellness. Um, I, I think those are more occasion adders. Like, if I had to say my personal opinion, I think those are more occasion adders to the weekdays and occasions when non-alcoholic beer is consumed, the world is a stressful place and I don't think anyone is calling the end to alcohol consumption or anything. But well, I'll, I'll give you one just a very quick example. I did a thing, you know, more than 10 years ago where it was a gourmet magazine, so maybe it was 15 years ago, and I was putting on a demo and the person before me, she had a thing where she was demonstrating through different spicing and acid additions, whatever else, how to make all sorts of foods work with all kinds of wines. And she worked for Robert Mondavi. And what she said was, we have a team at Robert Mondavi of 20 chefs, and all we do is work on recipes that make Mondavi wines taste great. On any given day in the United States, there'll be 50, 60, 70 Mondavi wine dinners across the country. And they have 20 people working on food pairing, how to, you know, how to salt and, you know, and how to spice things so that all their stuff tastes great. If you want to understand why we are losing, you know, to these guys, 
you know, to cocktails and to the wine people, that's how hard they are working on real life. What people actually want, what matters to them. Does it taste good in the way, and does it work for me in the way that I'm actually living? We do almost nothing, nothing. I mean, compared to these people. Now, I'm not saying we're Robert Mondavi, that we have this money, but if you even cut it down, you know, almost nobody in this room has one person who does that, generally. Maybe one or, one or two of you do. But we're not, we're not taking it seriously. We're not taking people's lives seriously. You know, and I think part of what NA Beer is about is taking people's lives seriously. How do people actually live? You know, are you gonna have a beer at you know at noon on you know on Thursday really <laughs> you know is that gonna be fine for you like oh, then how are you gonna show up you know in this person's life and do something for them um, and the wine people are all over it they are so serious and so are the cocktail people that's why you go into every great cocktail bar in the world and there is a non-alcoholic cocktail program which is just as serious you know as the alcoholic cocktail program you know, those people do not mess around. You know, so I think that across, I'm not talking about just any beer, I mean across, you know, the way we talk about marketing and whatever else. That's what my first book, Brewmaster Table, was about. People eat dinner every day, get with it. You know, be in the room, you know, and matter. As we started to see um, uh, laws change uh, where marijuana is now becoming legal uh, for, for personal use in, uh, in, in, in a lot of states, is there a potential for a synergy to exist between <clears throat> marijuana and any beer in a way that... <laughs> 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 I know. I wrote the book on it. I'll go back to the Gen Z question. Uh, you said why, you know, it's going, sales are going down, and I think that, that was a great segue yeah. to this because um, younger people, especially Gen Z, uh, Gen X, Gen Z, I mean, you, you name it, younger people now have more options if they want to avoid alcohol, because there's so many, I've run into, I have a 24-year-old daughter and a 28-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, so they're in that age group where I can get cheap marketing <laughs> research done. <laughs> and uh, them, they and their friends, are, are they almost abstain from alcohol at times, and sometimes they just stay away from it. Some, sometimes they, they use cannabis as a replacement, and so that's, that's one thing you have to really seriously look at if you're a big beer producer or whatever, you know, big beer guys, um, that's why some of them are getting into cannabis because it provides another option for younger people to enjoy a weekend without, as my daughters would say, ruining, ruining your liver. And so, um, so and, and they, they, I saw statistics, um, more and more you're seeing them, more than 50% of Americans think that cannabis is more healthy than alcohol, which is, that's a scary thought to, to big brewers and to alcohol producers when the majority of Americans believe that cannabis is more healthy and cannabis is less, or sorry, alcohol is less healthy than cannabis. So it's, and, and these are young, that's the Americans in general, as you get younger, uh, younger uh, people and question them, that percentage goes up. They, you know, up to 70%, 80% of young people will say, oh, cannabis is, is healthy, it's a plant. Alcohol is, is, is terrible for my liver. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so, so uh, it's another option for, for young people, and uh, that's, that's primarily why we got into the, the, the NA business, was because if you want to make a beverage with, a beer, I'm a beer guy, so I wanted to make beer with, with cannabis, and the first thing you find out is uh, you cannot legally sell a product with alcohol and cannabis in it. And so, so we said, okay, we won't. <laughs> we'll make NA beer, and we'll put, we'll make our cannabis water soluble and toss it in there. And then, and of course, the the BA saw this huge need for it, so I wrote a book and actually brought it. It's, it's, we can, I could give it to to John to give out as, as a prize here if anybody. I don't know if you have a, but it's yeah. I, I wrote this last year. It's it's uh, brewing with cannabis, and I, I tried to make it as easy to read as possible, so. So anybody can go through it and, and read and, and see kind of the history of cannabis, the, uh, the legalities, the marketing, the sales. I threw in some homebrew recipes with it. And, uh, uh, but it's, again, it's, it's another option for young people and you're gonna see uh, just more and more beverages come out with cannabis. You're gonna see um, occasions with cannabis that used to be alcohol occasions or maybe they're 
different occasions, like, like Bill was talking about, there's a lot of occasion-based drinking going on out there. Sometimes there are more, some occasions where cannabis just goes better. I mean, in this room, how many people have smoked cannabis? There you go, see, you guys, uh, those of you who haven't, when it becomes legal in your state, I guarantee you'll probably say, well, maybe now that it's legal, I'll try it. And you try it, and first thing you do is you, you may smoke some, and then after that you'll say, you know what, <coughs> I'm coughing with, with COVID, I don't want to risk my lungs. So then you go to edibles, and after edibles you, you say, well, you know, I want something more social. Because at the end of the day, you know, at a wedding or a special event, you can't toast with a gummy. <laughs> <laughs> So that's why beverages just make sense to all of us. Everybody in the Western Hemisphere, we were raised on celebrating over beverages. I don't care you know, if it's the, the, the new world, the old world. Beverages are what we drink and socialize with. And so it just makes sense to, to have this type of product, a, a beer beverage with cannabis. It's, it's another option. And so we're, we're going to see an increase and increase. In, uh, We've been in it for four years now, and we're seeing it increase. We're in Colorado, California, and it's just, uh, it's, I was gonna say it's getting worse and worse, but it's, it's getting better and better, so. Well, and also, like, you know, weed is just a, I mean, I, I personally don't care for THC, but weed is a cool plant. <laughs> I mean, like, I grew some last year, I'm like, you should have seen me. I was like, uh, high times back, I'm taking all these beauty shots. I'm not even gonna smoke it. Like, my friends love me now. I'm not, like, like you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a good farmer. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't tried it yet, but they, I'm, they tell all of them they tell me like, that it's awesome. Yeah. No, to, to, just to piggyback on that, it really is a cool plant, because a lot of us are familiar with THC. It gets you high, and we've read about CBD that makes you tired and helps you sleep or whatever, maybe take away pain, but, there are more than a hundred cannabinoids in the plant, and most of them haven't been identified. Um, it's, it's, a, it's absolutely crazy. I, I even write about it in here. Some of them that have been identified. There's some that act like um, uh, caffeine, some that will definitely make you tired, some that will definitely make you sleepy and, and take away pain, anti-inflammatories, um, some like Viagra. I mean, there's just, it's crazy in this plant, and it was made illegal, and I talked about why it was made illegal, but primarily racial reasons and uh, uh, threats to profits to big corporations. That's the, it was never ever studied as to whether the plant is, is highly addictive or there's no medical value to it, which is, that's why it's illegal. The, the, the federal government currently says there is no medical value to the plant and it's highly addictive. And it's like, far from it. It's, this, this, it was made illegal because of uh, prejudicial reasons and because of early immigrants uh, uh, Hispanic people, uh, Chinese immigrants who were brought over to, to work the railroads, uh, African Americans were, who were, a lot of them were using cannabis, jazz singers, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The plant is helpful to humans, and it, it's absolutely illegal. It's, it's, so that's why I can't, I can't wait till it's made legal. <laughs> Um, I wish we had more time, but we're at the end of our hour. Um, do you want to give this away as a prize? Sure. To, to I, I don't know how we would do that, but... <laughs> who, who, who wants the book? <laughs> Fire it into the crowd of the cannon. <laughs> <laughs> so in the back it's blocked, you know? So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Quick shout out, John Hall has a book launching Tuesday? Oh yeah, and the Craft Brewery Cookbook comes out on Tuesday. Thank you. Uh, and we probably won't say um, it itself. So. No, uh, and I was waiting after Keith pulled his book out, I was hoping that you had a copy of the Oxford Companion in your back pocket. That I, 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 you know, I do not. From my, uh, you know, I, have a, I have a few rolls. I do not carry the product you know, like, <laughs> uh, on me. It's like when I go out with salespeople, we, have, we will have dinner. It will, be, it will not be standing up and it will not be at the venue. Yeah, you know, those are those are those are my rules. Those are the rules. You know, and that's how I avoid having two two chicken wings and a bag of fries and eight beers for dinner, like y'all did last night. <laughs> Nobody lives better than you, Derek, uh, Keith, Phil. Thanks so much for for being on this panel. Our thanks again to Eric Edom for capturing the audio and be sure to check out probrewer.com for the eventual video portion of this seminar. Also visit the site as well, because twice a week, Beer Edge is releasing original articles covering issues important to the beer industry and aimed at helping breweries of all sizes understand different facets of the business. So go to probrewer.com. 
Also, don't forget, All About Beer is back online. Go to allaboutbeer.com to catch up with great content. And if you want to keep in touch with me, if you have questions, comments, concerns, anything else, you can always email me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Go to beeredge.com for this week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch and follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you the show each week thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. A reminder, my new book, The Craft Brewery Cookbook, is now on sale whenever you get your books packed with recipes and stories from some of the best breweries in the country. This cookbook has all of your beer and food pairing needs covered in fresh and inventive ways. It's published by Princeton Architectural Press, so get your copy today wherever books are sold. Final reminder, go check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And one more time, go visit allaboutbeer.com. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>